From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. On this week's program, erectile dysfunction and heart disease. Can ED be an early sign of heart problems in men? There definitely is an association that occurs about three years before the heart disease. It could be because it's blood flow. Stop blood flow to the heart, that's a heart attack. Stop blood flow to the penis, that's erectile dysfunction. Mayo Clinic cardiologist Dr. Stephen Kapetsky joins us to talk about ED and heart disease, as well as other men's heart health topics. Also on the program, it's National Children's Dental Health Month. From brushing and flossing to kids' mouth guards, we'll hear from Mayo Clinic dentist and prosthodontic specialist, Dr. Thomas Salinas. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shire. And I'm Tracy McRae. Erectile dysfunction. You know, the mere mention of it brings to mind TV ads for drugs to restore function and enhance sexual activity. And if you're like me and you watch the Golf Channel, it's virtually every other commercial. That's all you see. But erectile dysfunction and heart disease, well, in recent years, research has shown a link between ED and heart disease. ED may even be a predictor of heart disease when no other signs are present. As part of our month-long series in conjunction with American Heart Month, we're talking today about the role of erectile dysfunction in heart disease. Our guest is Mayo Clinic cardiologist Dr. Stephen Kapetsky. Welcome back, Dr. Kapetsky. Thank you very much. Good to have you on the program. Thank you, Tom. So there is an association between these two. Tell us about that. There definitely is an association. There's many associations with other with arteries being narrowed around the body and then also in the heart. For instance, if you've had a stroke, you're more likely to have some narrowing of the arteries in your heart. However, the interesting association with erectile dysfunction is if you start to develop it, that seems to predict in the next three years you'll get some problems with your heart. Now, that's different depending on your age. So is it likely that the uh, problem with uh, erectile dysfunction is going to show up before the heart disease? Yes, it occurs about three years before the heart disease. Now, why is that? Well, it could be because it's blood flow. Heart attacks stop uh, blood flow to the heart, that's a heart attack. Stop blood flow to the penis, that's erectile dysfunction. It could be because the size of the arteries are very similar, you know, about two or three millimeters, the penile artery and the the main coronary arteries. It also could be the way that the arteries uh, enlarge themselves. The endothelium or the lining that we all have in our arteries, that's what helps the arteries enlarge in the heart and also in the penis when you need to get an erection. If one artery is bad, it's likely that other arteries in your body are also clogged. As orthopedic surgeons say, the hip bone's connected to the leg bone, so they're all connected. (laughs) Well, that might be some reasons uh, that would give people a reason to start paying a little bit more attention to how the condition of their heart, if it makes a difference as far as ED is concerned. That's very true, Tracy, in that many times when patients come in, you know, they come in for erectile dysfunction. And that's a golden opportunity for every family practitioner, internist, doctor, urologist, to say, you know, you also need to talk about your heart. We need to worry about your arteries to your heart getting narrowed. Do you find that most family practitioners, and I suspect some of these gentlemen end up in a urologist's office, are they pretty good about uh, referring them on to someone who can assess their risk for heart disease? I think in general they are, but as the pace of the practice gets busier and busier, we give the the prescription for the drug for the erectile dysfunction, and we sometimes don't take the time or have the time to take 
to start talking about your heart and your arteries to your heart. What about stroke? Is there an association there also? Yeah, there is an association, again, because all the arteries are connected. Not as strong, but there is an association. And when you see someone with erectile dysfunction, how do you assess whether or not uh, they have also have heart disease or what their risk is for, for pending heart trouble? Yeah, and that's a great question. And what we need to do is start asking them some questions, meaning do you have other risk factors for heart disease, meaning diabetes, smoking, cholesterol, sedentary lifestyle? Because we know that the risk factors for erectile dysfunction and the risk factors for heart disease, you can basically overlay them. They're exactly the same. Mm. One of the things that I know you've been interested and involved in is cardiac risk assessment. Maybe in order to get people more interested in what you're talking about, you should have an erectile dysfunction risk assessment. And you might be able to capture a little bit more attention. Well, you know, that's a great, <laughs> that's a great point. And if you did a risk profile for heart attack, it would basically be the same as the risk profile for stroke, the risk profile for dementia or Alzheimer's, mm -hmm. or a risk profile for erectile dysfunction. Well, let's talk about that risk assessment. What is it and what does it do, a, a cardiac risk assessment? It, uh, it is a way of trying to put you in a category as a patient, your risk for having a heart attack or a stroke or dying of the same thing over the next 10, say, 10 years. We know that we can start to look at those things and we'll find certain uh, entities like diabetes, like smoking, like sedentary lifestyle, inappropriate diet, not enough fruits and vegetables, blood pressure being too high, cholesterol being too high. Those things really do predict you having problems over the next few years. In the past, then, I guess what you're saying is people would have their heart attack or have the stroke, and then, oh, there's some heart issues here that we need to be worrying about. And instead of waiting until you have an event like that, figure it out ahead of time. Yeah, exactly right. And, uh, of course, we as Americans tend to want to uh, wait until the day before we have the heart attack and we'll go get a stent. <laughs> Unfortunately, we can't predict those uh, events from happening. But one thing you can predict is if the erectile dysfunction comes on, especially if you're younger. So, for instance, uh, if you're a young man versus a... Uh, a 40-year-old man. I was going to say, let's talk about the age that's associated with these young and middle-aged. Yeah, you're right, exactly. And compared to a man that is not that age, say a man in his 60s or 70s, if you have erectile dysfunction in your 70s, your risk for heart disease goes up about one and a half times. If you have erectile dysfunction in your 40s, your risk of heart disease is 50 times higher. Wow. Wow. What, how about genes? We're hearing more and more about the human genome, and people are talking about uh, genes and, and how uh, it is a, its association with certain diseases. What does is, what is genetics have to do with heart disease? Well, genetics clearly plays a role. We all have the genes that code for our cholesterol, our blood pressure, other uh, proteins in our blood that may affect it. But if you look at heart disease, the, if you have genes, the 50 or so genes we know right now that aren't related to, uh, say, cholesterol or, or blood pressure, the 50 or so genes will increase your risk about 1.4, 1.5. If you look at lifestyle, meaning if you don't, uh, you're not active, you're overweight, you smoke, uh, you, you don't uh, eat fruits and vegetables, that increases your risk by a factor of 4 to 5. So lifestyle trumps genes. We're talking with Mayo Clinic cardiologist Dr. Stephen Kapetsky about men's heart health. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to find out about the Mediterranean diet that we have heard about and running. What does running have to do with healthy hearts? You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. And we are with heart specialist, Dr. Stephen Kopetsky, Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Kopetsky, let's talk some more about uh, risk factors and what one can do to prevent not only or improve erectile dysfunction and prevent heart disease. And, and one of the important things that I've heard you talk about before is exercise. And we've heard more and more about how a sedentary lifestyle is detrimental to your health and, and bad for your heart. So tell us about the role of uh, exercise and what you recommend. Yes. You know, it's interesting, Tom. If you look at uh, our bodies that we've been on this earth for how long, we didn't used to get up in the cave in the morning and turn to our spouse and say, hey, I'm going to jog for half an hour and I'll get you some latte on the way home. (laughs) You would say, hey, I'm going to try to go out and find some food and not be killed. So you'd walk along and you'd see something and you'd chase it for a minute or two or something would see you and chase you for a minute or two, but it wouldn't chase you for an hour. And you wouldn't chase a rabbit for an hour to try to get it. And so the same idea here. We have to stay mobile. We have to stay active. Every couple of hours you have to move around. If you have a desk job in front of a computer, get up every hour or two and walk around, take the flight of stairs. That's equivalent to moving like we used to move. And so we know that if you get up, say, in the morning, 5 a.m., go exercise for an hour, (laughs) then you go sit all day, that the sitting all day is equal to smoking half a pack of cigarettes in terms of your risk of heart attack. Let's talk about that 5 a.m. thing, because you sent me this note about what could we talk about today, and you said um, running was one of the things to cover. I was on my way out the door to go meet my running group to do a 5K in the morning, and I told them as we were jogging, you know, maybe we're not supposed to be doing all this much running. So let's talk about running, and it seems like... If you're running, you're doing a good thing for your heart. There is such a thing as too much running? Well, there's too much of anything. It's a good, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's what we decided. Right. And, and none is also not good. And so multiple studies have shown that it's what we call a U-shaped curve, meaning at either end of the spectrum, no running at all or too much running, you increase your risk for death. So the how much is too much running? Well, it shouldn't be more than three or four times a week. It shouldn't be more than about five miles an hour is really ideal. You know, if you run a 10-minute, uh, you know, 10 miles an hour, that's a little much. Uh, five miles an hour is more ideal. A couple of hours a week, two and a half hours a week is all maybe three times. So just take it in moderation. Don't think you've got to be the fastest, you know, bunny in the forest. Are, are you suggesting that marathoners have a higher incidence of heart disease? Marathoners uh, do have higher incidence of heart disease, both uh, coronary disease, with as evidenced by coronary calcification. On a so CT those scan. are the arteries that feed the heart, the coronary arteries? They start to get uh, more calcium in them, which means damage, and they start to get more atrial fibrillation. These are regular heartbeats that we see. So it's a good reason for me to not ramp up my miles, <laughs> just stay where I'm at. And, you know, we were talking about that, and I said part of what we like about getting together and running is the social impact of it, which we determined to be good for our hearts as well. We were very hard and fast with our decision on that this morning. Good. Well, one <laughs> way, good way to do it is to do intervals when you run. So pick out a, a sign or a post or a tree and run real hard towards that for, say, 30, 60 seconds. Then back off, slow down, you know, jog slowly, get your breath back so you can talk to your friends. Then pick another one and, and do good. it again. I believe I've heard you say that interval training that you're suggesting can actually lower your uh, LDL, your bad cholesterol? It will lower the particle counts for your LDL, but it will raise your HDL more than just regular static running. So HDL is good. That's good cholesterol. HDL is good. We want that higher. In fact, the good thing is if you uh, do intervals for 30 minutes or, say, 20 minutes of intervals, that's like doing a standard jog for 30 minutes. So you use more calories. As long as we're on the subject of of, uh, cholesterol, 
Uh, let's talk about statins. I've heard you say before that uh, there are a lot of cardiologists, uh, probably at this institution and elsewhere, who have a normal uh, total cholesterol that, but are still taking a statin drug. Is that still true? Well, let's define normal. Normal is average. In average in this country, the average man that has a heart attack in his 60s in this country has an LDL cholesterol of 122, which we have termed normal, but really it's average. But you're still at increased risk for that. So statins, a good idea? Statins, if you have a risk, uh, a higher risk, more than a 7.5% chance of having a heart attack or a stroke or dying in the next 10 years, it's recommended you take them. Now, there is a uh, site on the Internet where you can go and uh, put in some facts about yourself, including blood pressure, glucose, cholesterol, etc., and it will actually tell you what your risk is, right? Yes, there is a couple of good websites. You can go in there and enter it as a patient, and it'll give you good info. We should put that on our uh, on our website so Consider people it know done. where to go. Consider it done. When we're talking about cholesterol, we should jump over and talk about the Mediterranean diet, which the last couple of times that you've been on our program, we end up talking about food, which I just love. Yeah, yeah. So um, explain to our listeners what the Mediterranean diet is and why it's something that you have been so passionate about. Well, the Mediterranean diet has been shown, even up against the American Heart low-fat diet, to reduce your chance of dying, having a stroke, or having a heart attack. It's not a lose-weight diet. It's not a lower-your-cholesterol diet. It's a feel-better, live-longer diet. It's lots of fruits and vegetables, at least five a day, with a serving being a tennis ball. It is uh, uh, whole grains. It is legumes. It's fish three or four times a week. It's olive oil, and uh, it's avoiding a lot of red meats. You get a deck of cards of red meat. Tom, if you went to a steak place and ordered a steak and they brought you a deck of cards, piece of meat, what would you uh, say you to probably the probably have walk out. Yeah, yeah. yeah isn't it three ounces? Yeah, go someplace else. Is that what it's supposed to be? Three ounces. Ever since I ever, I've heard that number, when I go to a restaurant, I look, and there isn't even an option for a three-ounce steak on the menu. That's, you have probably, to split it with somebody else. That's right. Yeah. You have to take your spouse and, and, and split <laughs> it up. Yeah. So the Mediterranean diet, uh, if someone wanted to follow that, is there a book that you would recommend, a recipe book, or, or how do you really? follow it and the pro- how do you do it long term yes uh, it um, well it is palatable and it is sustainable I mean people have eaten Mediterranean diet for thousands of years and they do it all their life we do have a booklet we give patients it's about eight or ten pages it has a very simple quiz at the very beginning you take the quiz and if you're doing of the 14 components which are 10 do's four don'ts then then you're great if you don't then you work on the components you're not achieving so you have that booklet in your department uh, yes, in our institution. And it's a Mayo publication? It is. That means we can link to it on our program. You certainly can. <laughs> okay, very good. We'll <laughs> do that, too. a lot of good stuff. And you had said in some of the research that you sent over that not only is a Mediterranean diet great for your heart um, or for stroke, but it's also good for some other some, for some other diseases as well. Yes, it really does a lot of good things. Like we talked earlier, the risk factors for many diseases are the same, and the Mediterranean diet not only lowers heart disease, lowers stroke, it lowers dementia, it lowers Parkinson's, it lowers uh, uh, erectile dysfunction, diabetes, and metabolic syndrome. So it helps many things. Speaking again, we'll go full circle back to erectile dysfunction. During the break, you were saying that uh, some motivation to improve your heart health that and what the outcome of that would be for erectile dysfunction. Yes, if you do work on your heart health, you know, start being more active, eating better, etc., taking care of your blood pressure, that we found will not only benefit your heart, but in about two years, will start to improve your erectile dysfunction 
to the point that it's equal to taking about 25 milligrams of a commonly prescribed medicine for erectile dysfunction. And men may sometimes say, well, I can just take higher the dose. And I say, you know, this is a progressive disease, and it may be that the dose of this pill you take for ED doesn't, isn't enough at some point, and you really need to take care of yourself. Obesity, a huge problem. Uh, two-thirds of, uh, of our country, the people in our country are overweight. A third of us are obese. Do most of the patients that you see with heart disease, are they obese? Are they overweight? Well, most of the patients we all see are overweight. I mean, 60% of the people that walk in our door now. But there is a, a higher, I think, incidence of obesity in the ones that have ED, that have heart disease. Diabetes, also a huge risk factor. And uh, it's been said that there's an epidemic of diabetes in this country, and it's probably directly or indirectly related to obesity. Is it true that the majority of people who go to the emergency room today with a heart attack have diabetes or pre-diabetes? I don't think it's the majority necessarily, but they do have lots of risk factors. If you are having a heart attack, you have told us before that it's a good idea to chew four baby aspirin or one regular aspirin. Still correct? Still correct. Chew them because they get into your uh, oral mucosa and they're absorbed much quicker than if you swallow it. And why does that help? Oh, it helps because it affects the platelets, little cells, about the one-eighth the size of a red blood cell. Their job in life is to clot. And any, if you have a big heart attack, about 1% of the platelets in your body may be in your left front artery clogging it up. All right, so it'll keep the clot from progressing. Correct. All right, bottom line, let's review. What should we do for not only erectile dysfunction, but probably just as important or more important, our heart? Because yeah. if your heart's not functioning, what goes on down below doesn't really make any difference. Very true. <laughs> the, uh, there are four things, Tom, that have been uh, tried and true and shown to be helpful. One is don't smoke, and that means any smoking. Two is your weight. Try to get a body mass index or BMI of under 30. And by the way, you can look that up easily and find out what your BMI is on the Internet. It's the relationship between height and weight. Pretty easy. Just go to the chart and, and you can figure and it if out. If you don't want to do BMI, just get a tape measure. Measure your waist for a man, 40 inches or less. A woman, 35 inches or less. All right. Smoking, obesity. Third is the fruits and vegetables. Five servings a day. That's a servings a tennis ball. The skin on is better. The less, uh, the more fresh, the better. The less cooked, the better. And finally is activity, 150 minutes a week. Keep moving. Do intervals where you go for 60, 90 seconds hard. And that will be good for your heart, but uh, also for your erectile dysfunction and a lot of other things. Many things. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Kopetsky. He's a cardiologist at Mayo Clinic here in Rochester. Up next, it's National Children's Dental Health Month. From brushing and flossing to kids' mouth guards, we hear from Mayo Clinic prosthodontic specialist, Dr. Thomas Salinas. Next. And if you have a question you'd like us to answer in an upcoming program, you can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. Or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Vivian Williams with headlines from the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
Bariatric surgery, also called weight loss surgery, can help improve liver issues and other obesity-related health problems in severely obese kids. But because this surgery can cause serious complications, a panel of experts says it should only be used for certain kids who have severe obesity and related health conditions. They say the epidemic of childhood obesity has resulted in obesity-related diseases, including type 2 diabetes and what's called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Losing weight with a healthy lifestyle is the best way to treat these problems, but it's not always easy to do. They say kids should meet certain criteria before having bariatric surgery. And this was in the European Journal of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition. In other news, precision medicine is getting a jump start thanks to President Obama's State of the Union address. With what's called whole exome sequencing, doctors can look at not just one gene, but a person's entire gene sequence to more accurately make diagnoses and tailor treatments. It's already used for some cancers and other diseases to help patients get exactly the care they need. Here's Dr. Alexander Parker. Previously, when we would do single gene testing, when we would try to understand if a particular gene was maybe causing a patient's disease or or helping us understand why they're not responding to a treatment, we would have to go look at a single gene at a time. By using what's called whole exome sequencing, we're able to look at the entire genetic sequence of a patient. And instead of having to hope that we're focused in the right area, we can look in all areas at the same time and find the answer rather than guessing where the answer might be. So we're very excited that we can provide this to our patients and really be viewed as one of the leaders in moving from the promise of genomic medicine to the actual practice of genomic medicine and make a difference in people's lives. And now let's talk about e-cigarettes, you know, electronic cigarettes. Do they help people quit smoking? Well, the debate continues. Now, e-cigarettes heat a liquid solution and turn it to aerosol that mimics cigarette smoke. A new University of Rochester study suggests that these e-cigarettes are likely a toxic replacement for tobacco products. The researchers found they damage lung cells by causing inflammation and other things. And this harm starts when the device heats up to make that vapor you inhale. They found mice exposed to e-cigarettes showed signs of the inflammation. They said their research affirms that e-cigarettes may pose significant health risks and should be investigated further. And this was published in the journal PLOS One. And that's a look at headlines from the Mayo Clinic News Network. I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. With regular dental care and fluoride in the water these days and even in the toothpaste, most children, fortunately, will grow old with all of their teeth. Hmm, that's but, a good thing. Listen to this. Did you know this? According to the American College of Prosthodontists, about 35 million Americans have no teeth. 35 have, million edentulous have no teeth. people in the United States. Hmm. Well, part of it is I think we're all living longer. That's true. February is National Children's Dental Health Month. Here to talk about how to ensure that your kids grow up with healthy teeth is Mayo Clinic prosthetic dental specialist, Dr. Thomas Salinas. Welcome to the program, Dr. Salinas. Good to have you with us. Thank you, Dr. Shives. Is it really possible that 35 million adults in this country have no teeth? Certainly. I mean, it's uh, something that we think about in a developed nation like ours, and it's staggering in the fact that people do have access to care in this country uh, for the most part. But there still are certain socioeconomic status uh, indicators that tell us that not everybody 
either has the ability or chooses to uh, replace their teeth for a variety of reasons. Is that what a prosthetic dental specialist does? Is that what kind of work you do is help restore people's teeth? Certainly. It's one of the many things we do. Uh, we're dedicated to replacement of orofacial structures. Uh, uh, the the uh, term prosthodontist, as it's called, kind of confuses people. But what we do, at least uh, here at Mayo Clinic, is uh, helping the other medical specialties replace function of the uh, orofacial structures, swallowing speech, segments of the jaw that are removed. So replacement with dentures is certainly one of the things that we do, but uh, general dental care uh, also includes that. There are a lot of people who have partial teeth replaced. I mean, they don't have, they're not completely edentulous, right? Correct. And that more and more of those because what you do, you're better at what you do, so they don't have to have a full mouth restoration or dentures? Well, there's lots of factors that go into this. Uh, one of the reasons why people choose to seek the care of a specialist is the fact that uh, their case may be difficult. They've been wearing dentures for years. Uh, their jaws have resorbed or changed along the way, and they're no longer easily suited to accepting the use of a prosthetic device, be it a partial denture or a complete denture. So some people choose to seek the the specialty care, just to have a little bit better understanding of what their options really are. In the general uh, dental care arena, it may not be quite so streamlined, and uh, that's one of the reasons why our specialty does partake in that type of, of care. Can you, if someone is a dentalist and has been wearing dentures, can you restore them and, and put in new teeth? You certainly can. There's a variety of ways to do it. In a conventional way, you can certainly make complete dentures. Uh, as we all have seen, uh, some of our patients have worn complete dentures for years. Sometimes this is more sophisticated, and uh, dental implants can be used to restore uh, missing teeth on either a partial or full arch basis. But, yes, that can be done in a more advanced degree. And the reason that you're able to do that now and weren't able to do it a decade or two ago is, is why? Well, I think you certainly were able to do it. In osseointegration, as it's termed, dental implant specialty had come to this country in the early 80s, late 70s, and uh, some of the care at that time was limited in its scope, and the materials and devices that were used were not easily accomplished. So that's one of the reasons why it started out with specialty care. In this day and age, we have lots of changes in developments of materials and surgical techniques, making the process a bit more streamlined and not so protracted like it used to be just uh, 30 to 40 years ago. And you say osseointegration. What does that mean? How does that work? Very good question. Osseointegration, as we know it today, uh, basically was coined by Brownamark, who actually came to Mayo Clinic some years ago, operated mm. with our surgeons, and uh, he coined the term osseointegration. It implies fusion of an implant titanium dental implant with bone on both a, a visible light microscopic scale and uh, ultra uh, microscopic scale as well. So you put a, a peg, a metal peg, down into the jaw, and the jawbone actually grows into this peg, and then you can attach to a tooth to that, and it's basically permanent. Yeah, it certainly is. In fact, titanium is one of the few materials that actually cause a cascade of events that causes peripheral blood marrow cells to differentiate into osteoblasts. So that's huh. very unique, and no other material uh, has that effect. And it's a permanent solution for someone uh, who's missing a tooth or multiple teeth. It certainly can be. At least the implantable part of it is permanent. What goes on top of it, however, is uh, uh, modularity, if you will, uh, being able to change it out for one design to another design over time. Now, we want to get to a spot where we don't ever have to worry about our teeth falling <laughs> out of our heads. And, you know, no one loves a great party more than me. So National Children's Dental Health Month. 
was a reason to party. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> a reason for some birthday cake or some sort. But Dr. Salinas, you have joined us before and uh, talked so much about getting kids a little bit more actively involved in taking care of their own teeth. But there's a lot more than that that goes on when it comes to kids and dentistry. The shocking fact is uh, a number of our uh, preschool age children are affected by early childhood caries. And this is something that's uh, despite, again, our development as a, as a nation, has uh, really an epidemic proportion nowadays. There's a, uh, a survey taken some 10 years ago that indicates up to 72% of preschool-aged children are afflicted with some form of early childhood caries. Wow. So they have cavities. But I thought with fluoride in the water, uh, caries were practically a thing of the past. Well, it certainly has uh, – fluoride has certainly improved a lot of the demographics in that regard. But uh, – in one respect, not all communities, even to this day, are fluoridated, and even so, there are a number of other factors that play into development of childhood caries. Such as? Well, a number of things, uh, namely uh, the uh, having the, the caretaker uh, afflicted with uh, strep mutants in a large population. For instance, some of our caretakers really do not themselves have good oral hygiene. Okay. And as a high population count of bacteria in their mouth, they pass that on to the uh, to their offspring. And uh, during the early care years, it can be a real difficult challenge to keep them free from the potential of developing decay. Uh, sugary drinks, sucrose-laden mm-hmm. foods, and things of this sort are something that preschool-age children may have ready access to. Uh, that's another uh high-risk area, if you will. So there are a number of things that can cause this problem, and certainly fluoridation has helped, but it hasn't eliminated this this problem. So not everyone is a helicopter parent like you. Yeah. Who make them r- well, rush. One it, thing, well, I was just going to say one thing I did learn was, that, you know, don't give them juice in their bottle so that they could just always be drinking juice. Once they get past that bottle stage, I think it's not that much different, actually, because there's all those drink pouches and drink boxes, and you've got those all over the place. Well, it's it's ready access to sugar, and kids, as we all love sugar, even as adults, we all love sugar. It's just built into our metabolism for a number of reasons. But uh, suffice it to say that sucrose itself is uh, certainly encouraging the growth of certain types of bacteria that cause caries, but it also allows these microorganisms to attach specifically to tooth surfaces. So sucrose itself is a real... Uh, significant prognostic indicator of uh, consumption, anyway, of, of how this happens. Tips on how to make sure your children keep their teeth for life. We're here with Dr. Thomas Salinas, who is a prosthetic dental specialist. We'll take a short break. When we come back, we've got a myth or matter of fact. Yeah, myth or matter of fact. My child doesn't play contact sports, so a mouth guard isn't necessary. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're here with Mayo Clinic prosthetic dental specialist, Dr. Thomas Salinas. And talking about children's oral health, and Dr. Salinas, you have already told us that oral health in children is important. And unfortunately, there's still a lot of children out there who have caries or cavities. And there are even some areas in this country where there is not fluoride in the water. What about uh, providing fluoride in the dentist's office? You can do that, can't you? As far as the ability to uh, 
apply ch- fluoride to children's teeth. It can be done very easily in a dental office through either a fluoride varnish or a topical fluoride application. It's very low risk. Um, fluoride in this concentration, if it's controlled well and uh, in a dental office it would be controlled, this is a highly effective means of uh, arresting and reversing processes of, of decay in children's and even adults' teeth. So it's very effective. That's one of the things you want to be sure to do when you take your child in for a dental checkup then. That's part of it, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a whole host of things that you can do with regard to uh, seeing a dentist periodically. It's important that we emphasize that everyone, every patient should have at least a dental, a primary dental home, as if you were to visit your physician each year. You should visit your dentist. Often things can be preemptively uh, treated, and it can, be, it can be more effective if it's intercepted that way. And when should those examinations start? When should uh, a child first see their dentist, and how often thereafter? Obviously, if you have problems, more often, but for routine checkups. Well, it even starts before that. I think at home, parents should give their children uh, sort of uh, even rubbing their gums with, uh, with a soft washcloth is one way to sort of give them an idea that this is a daily ritual, a routine. Mm-hmm. A washcloth. Yeah, and what that does is it gives the child a chance to understand that this is part, like a, taking a bath, it's part of the daily routine routine. And you habituate them to understanding that this is something that they need to care about as well. And in doing that, as children start to have their teeth erupt, which is variable, but it starts generally about the age of six months. At this time, parents should take basically a very small amount of toothpaste, the equivalent really to a grain of rice on a, on a pediatric toothbrush and start just gently brushing the area. It could be something very, very slowly acclimated to. And and by this time, the child knows that this is the norm. This is something that we need Hmm. to do. And by the time they reach this eruption state, which could be anywhere from many kids in six months to a year, that's the time that you should start thinking about deciding, okay, are we going to visit a primary care general dentist or do we need to visit a dental specialist, a pediatric dental specialist? And, And either is appropriate. Some children are very cooperative, and they understand the tell-show-do approach, as it were, and they can visit a dental office in this way and become just a regular visit patient for a lifetime. That's really our goal here, is to instill a lifetime value of, of having a dental home. However, if you want to look at, you know, you can inherit lots of different things from your parents, you might be able to also inherit their fear of going to the dentist. Yeah, and that's understandable. I think a lot has changed in the last 50 to 60 years of, of providing dental care. Number one is local anesthetics. Uh, local anesthetics certainly have improved a great deal along the way. Uh, they're very effective. They can be given in a very small amount. Uh, that's almost even reversible in some cases. Local dental anesthetic is probably one of the biggest hurdles I think that most patients have an innate fear of going to the dentist. Where does this start? This starts early. It starts in the childhood years. It starts with the child understanding that regular dental care, first of all, is important. Having them visit a dentist and understanding that if they do require a local dental anesthetic, this is really a small part of the experience. So they're afraid of the needle? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think uh, I think inherently all of us are to some degree. But if it's if if a, a habit is instilled even before any intervention is needed, I think most children become more cooperative understanding that this is a daily routine and I do need regular dental care. So the approaches to dental care now are quite different than they, as I mentioned, than they were years ago. And some of this is not just local anesthetics, but it's the overall approach to fear, fear in the dental office, fear of the unknown, fear of losing control, and fear of pain. 
How about flossing? You know, it's one thing to get your children to, to brush their teeth. I, at least, we at least, have never gotten our children to floss. Is it important for kids? How about you? Do you, your kids floss? <laughs> All the time. Just like Twice me. A day, Twice right? a day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, flossing for pediatric patients is, uh, I think, it's certainly important, especially in the back areas of the mouth. Primary teeth generally are often separated in the front part of the mouth. So it's not as critical, I think, in certain areas. In the back part, uh, or the back teeth, I should say, these are areas that are not readily accessible by a, a direct visual examination by a dental professional. So flossing back teeth is is very important for children. It's not always easy to approach that in preschool-age children, but as they come in their years, they can understand that this is a part of it. I will tell you something, though, that I did learn from you, Dr. Salinas. One of the last times that you were on is after you, after your visit, I went and got my kids the electric toothbrushes. We went and got one of those Sonicare toothbrushes because I like the two-minute timer that comes with it. And I told that that was that really has been the key. And from before that, it was basically get the toothbrush wet, brush, done. To now they actually do brush their teeth with that for two minutes. That has to be making a difference, thus making me mother of the year, correct? I think it would. <laughs> no no music? No, music? It just, no, no, it's it's good, though. And, yeah. you know, the little battery-operated ones uh, are also very good, I think. Yeah, they certainly do. I mean, they can do a much better job, particularly for children, than than they can on their own. Ultrasonic toothbrushes, mechanical toothbrushes of any type do have... Uh, a very beneficial effect. I mean, they can they can definitely clean teeth better than we can do just with a manual toothbrush, particularly for uh, children with special needs. This is also mm. important. Uh, they may not have the ability to do this on their own, so the use of an automated toothbrush either by themselves or even a caregiver can be really, really beneficial. And it's these population of patients that are susceptible to the problems that we were talking about earlier with uh, childhood caries. So. All right, now we know how to take care of our children's teeth, but we want to make sure they don't get knocked out. Myth or matter of fact, my child doesn't play contact sports, so a mouth guard isn't necessary. Myth or matter of fact. Well, I think uh, any sport that involves uh, any potential of uh, contact, regardless if it is contact or not, is always some concern of traumatizing upper front teeth, particularly upper front teeth, because these are the areas that are standardly the most prominent. And it, uh, it's, it's very, as, a, as far as the number of injuries that are, that are found each year, there are a number of injuries that happen uh, particularly in, in mid to, to late adolescence. And the reason for it primarily is because of contact sports or physical activity of some sort. So even though the activity may not involve contact, like baseball, let's say, uh, it's important to wear a mouth guard these times. You can have a something go astray. Someone can elbow you. Uh, basketball, in some respects, I guess, is not considered a contact sport. <laughs> but there are lots of uh, upper front teeth that we replace pretty frequently that are lost by that sort of thing. Riding all-terrain vehicles is another one that uh, we find is, is necessary. Uh, mm. But then it becomes a matter of using a, actually a face guard and a face shield, and not just a helmet in those cases. All right, there you go. Uh, keep them healthy and keep them in place. And floss. Right. It's okay. You've got time. <laughs> Thanks very much, Dr. Salinas, for bringing us up to date on the latest in children's oral health topics. Dr. Salinas is a prosthetic dental specialist at Mayo Clinic. Dr. Salinas, thanks. Thank you, Dr. Shives. 
For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Do you have a question about health and medicine from one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman, our social media editor, Audrey Castletime. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know. 